This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Hi, I'm Ron Paul, former congressman and presidential candidate. I'm here to tell you about a product that might just save your lives. It's a home freeze dryer from Harvest Right. With this great product, you can freeze dry the food your family loves, and it will last for 25 years. Our ancestors preserved and prepared for difficult times, shouldn't we? To learn more, go to HarvestRight.com or call 800-594-4635. That's 800-594-4635. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. You often hear that America's founders were selfish, hypocritical, and evil. Because while men like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington spoke out against slavery, they both owned slaves. The left, in particular, seems extremely unforgiving. It's often forgotten that these men from the 18th century are being judged by 21st century sensibilities. First of all, the point must be made, in this installment as in the last, that slavery was instituted and ingrained in colonial society by the British. The founders were simply the recipients of a system that had been in place for well over a century. In fact, as historian David Barton points out, it was the British who stopped the original abolition movement in America. Second, societal attitudes have changed dramatically in the past 250 years. As a matter of fact, in 1773 and in 1774, states like Rhode Island and Connecticut and Massachusetts and Pennsylvania passed anti-slavery laws. But in 1774, King George III vetoed every anti-slavery law in America. And by the way, that's what caused Thomas Jefferson to write that clause in the Declaration that was in favor of ending slavery that the three southern states demanded be removed. When we separated from Great Britain in 1776, it's significant that those states were the first ones to go back and end slavery. They tried to do so when we were British citizens. King George III said, no, we have slavery in the British Empire. You're part of the British Empire. You're going to have slavery. Once we were free from the British Empire, we started ending slavery. By 1800, every northern colony had abolished slavery in America. Think about how much attitudes have changed in Americans in just the past 10 years. For instance, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were both strongly against same-sex marriage as recently as just a few years ago. In fact, Hillary called traditional marriage between a man and a woman one of her fundamental bedrock principles. So I take umbrage at anyone who might suggest that those of us who worry about amending the Constitution are less committed to the sanctity of marriage or to the fundamental bedrock principle that it exists between a man and a woman going back into the mists of history as one of the founding, foundational institutions of history and humanity and civilization. Now that societal attitudes have shifted, so suddenly have they, including Hillary's fundamental bedrock principle that dates back through the mists of history. But they don't seem to be judged harshly or even at all for their previous lifelong positions. 
their attitudes changed from their early 21st century position to their completely opposite current position here in the early 21st century. Yet they and others like them condemn the founders for their 18th century attitudes, which actually evolved in positive ways during their lives and against the prevailing societal attitudes. Also, how many times have Americans heard the phrase, I personally hate abortion and would never do it myself, but am I going to tell anyone else not to do it? Yet again, some of the founders were wildly condemned for thinking one way, but acting another. George Washington and the rest of the founders of this nation who favored abolition knew that they could not immediately end slavery in the United States and still have a United States. They would have instantly lost all of the southern colonies, weakened the Union, and would have wound up without a nation. That's why Washington favored a gradual, or shall we say, progressive end to slavery. Despite having inherited his first 10 slaves when he was 11 years old, Washington grew to despise the practice. Upon his marriage to Martha Custis, Washington took possession of many more slaves. Martha was a widow when she married her second husband, George, and she brought to the marriage close to a hundred dowry slaves. David Barton explains. If she came in to the marriage with slaves, state law forbids you from ever freeing those slaves. You can never free dower slaves at all. So Washington, Martha comes in with slaves. Washington inherited slaves when he's 11 years old, 11 years old. And he tries to find a way to end slavery. Legislature won't do it. He starts arguing from the very beginning, we got to end slavery, can't do it. But her slaves and his slaves get married and form families. Now he can free his slaves, he can't free the dower slaves, which means he has to break up families if he emancipates his slaves. And so that's why he waited until his death to free slaves, because he said, you can't free the slaves till after I die, until after she dies. Because once we're both dead, then you can keep the families together. And so he points out that he could have made a ton of money if he could have sold his slaves, because he says it takes me twice as much to feed them as I make off the land. But he said, but I refuse to sell slaves. I refuse to participate in that practice of selling slaves. It's wrong. So he goes broke rather than practice something that goes against his conscience, which is selling slaves. And he would not free his slaves because that would separate families. And Virginia law, of course, did not recognize slave families or slave marriages, but he did. And that's why he took those families. He paid them for what they raised. He paid them for what they did. He did not treat them like slaves. He treated them like family, which is why after he released them, the blacks so long came back and took care of Mount Vernon, took care of his grave, took care of Martha's grave because they so loved him. He was like a father figure to them. In the American Revolution, there are great stories of how he thought that there was no difference between blacks and whites. And on one occasion in the Revolution, when he's talking to Colonel Timothy Pickering, he's out of Massachusetts. He and Pickering, good friends. They got talking late into the night. Washington looked up. They were still making plans. He said, uh, do you have a place I can stay here? And Colonel Pickering and a, a black manservant, not a slave, but a manservant who was there named Primus, uh, they said, oh, yeah, we got plenty of straw, plenty of bedding. Just spend the night here. And so Washington continued to, to work for another few hours talking to him, making plans. When it came time to go to bed, 
they had the straw and bedding laid out, Colonel Pickering and for George Washington went to bed. And Premus, the black man, was moving around in the tent taking care of things, so he didn't go to bed. Well, actually, George Washington was sleeping in his bed, and they didn't actually have all the straw and bedding they needed to host Washington. So Primus gave up his bed. So Primus sat up that night, nodding off, trying to get some sleep, and his head would bob and come back up. And Washington awoke in the middle of the night and looked up and saw Primus and said, Primus, what are you doing? He says, why aren't you in bed? He says, oh, I had things to do. You told me there was enough straw and bedding. I've got your bed, don't I? Well, he says, there's plenty of space here for both of us. Washington moved over, made him come sleep in the bed between him and Pickering. No racism, no no inequality. He looks at a black man and says, are you kidding? Get down. And his exercise regiment with Primus, often they worked out together. They jumped rope together. They did all sorts of stuff together. So there's no racism in Washington at all. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's fascinating to see Washington and what he did, what links he went to, to preserve the equality of mankind. But he, he couldn't free his slaves, and he refused to sell slaves. He was not going to participate in the slave trade, and he refused to break up families. And that's why he waited until his death and until Martha's death to free slaves. Phyllis Wheatley, a 22-year-old slave and poet who had met Washington years earlier, was so impressed with his respect and kindness that he had shown her that when he was made commander in the Continental Army in 1775... Wheatley wrote a poem to honor the man she so greatly admired. The poem ended with these words. Proceed, great chief, with virtue on thy side. Thy every action let the goddess guide. A crown, a mansion, and a throne that shine. With gold unfading, Washington be thine. Washington responded to her poem by inviting Miss Phyllis to his headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he received her as if she were a visiting dignitary, hardly the stuff of a hateful racist. The commander of the Continental Army and his close friend and confidant, the Marquis de Lafayette, used a trusted former slave named James Armistead, to act as a double agent during the most critical period of the Revolutionary War. If there had been latent racist tendencies festering in General George Washington, there would have been no way that he would have entrusted a slave with the mission he gave to Armistead. In the end, the trust paid huge dividends. The information Armistead gathered was vital to enabling the Americans and French forces to trap the British at Yorktown during the war's deciding victorious battle. In a time when the world was just emerging from having languished in the Dark Ages for over a thousand years, dozens of enlightened men, certainly not perfect men, but definitely brilliant, inspired, and enlightened, laid the foundation for what would become the greatest hope ever offered to mankind and they dealt with a complicated nightmare of slavery as best they could, while still being able to create the beacon of liberty that they did. There were barriers put in place that the founders couldn't simply tear down with a sledgehammer. Those barriers had to be chipped away, a little piece at a time. There were laws put in place by the British Empire. There was an entire economy built on the backs of slaves in the South, 
and for those who favored freeing their own slaves, either during their lives or upon their death. There were laws prohibiting that in many cases as well. Then there was the difference that we've discussed between dowry slaves and slaves inherited or purchased, where dowry slaves could not be freed by law. So freeing the others, but not the dowry slaves, would oftentimes split up families who married and had children. All of these complex issues and many more had to be addressed, along with the normal business of winning a war against the most powerful nation on earth and then building a new nation from the ashes. It was President George Washington who set the tone and an example and led the way that made it all possible. But there were other great men of courage and foresight. Among them, a man who was an inventor, author, printer, political theorist, politician, Freemason, postmaster, scientist, civil activist, statesman, diplomat, and America's greatest abolitionist. We walk the streets of colonial America with him next time. Glenn Beck. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com.